G'day and welcome to We're Only Here Once. I'm James Wiley and these are my stories. I hope you enjoy the ride. Nineteen ninety three Chapter seven Nicaragua Nicaragua was our first leap into a country whose waves we knew next to nothing about. The one hour flight northwest from Costa Rica with Joy, my Hawaiian travel partner, was a breeze, and we rented the four wheel drive we wanted for a very reasonable price. But from there things got challenging. In 1993, Nicaragua was struggling to recover from over a century of stop-start civil war. The most recent chapter of this ongoing tragedy had begun in 1979, when the Sandinistas, a people's political party and associated militia, had finally overthrown the murderous, hideously corrupt government that had ruled with hefty US support for over 50 years. US President Reagan had responded to this revolution by funding a paramilitary organisation called the Contras to attack and destabilise the new Sandinista government by any means necessary, including terrorism. The US Congress refused to approve of the President's initiative, but Reagan persisted with it anyway, secretly and illegally, by channelling profits made from selling weapons to Iran and Iraq to the Contras. This US-led counter-revolution caused at least 30,000 more deaths and the impoverishment of all Nicaraguans through the destruction of their economy. One way this was accomplished was through the crippling of Nicaragua's international trade by the laying of US-donated underwater mines in Nicaragua's main port. God bless America. In 1986, the International Court of Justice ruled that the USA owned Nicaragua reparation for the US-sponsored crimes committed in this period. Of course, the USA refused to recognise the validity of the court's ruling. With the end of the Cold War in the early 1990s, just a year or two before our visit, the political situation in Nicaragua became less tense. But the country we travelled through was still traumatised. Scars from the decades of conflict, division and repression were clearly visible in the graffiti and street art in each town and on the people's faces. Nonetheless, the locals we met made us feel welcome and safe, though I wonder if that would have been the case if we'd been American. In the mid-1970s, intrepid surfers from the USA had discovered a few spots with good waves along Nicaragua's Pacific coast. But in the 1980s, the Civil War had made further exploration too dangerous. So the information in Surfer Magazine's one-typed-page surf report on Nicaragua was patchy at best and before we'd visited, I'd never even seen a photo of a Nicaraguan wave. But since Nicaragua's Pacific coast links the coast of Costa Rica and El Salvador, two countries whose excellent surf had been well publicised, we knew Nicaragua must receive the same ground swells from the South Pacific. And surely there must be at least a few beaches, reefs, points and river mouths where these swells would morph into beautiful waves waiting to be discovered and ridden. But finding these waves, even the ones mentioned in the surf report, wasn't easy. Tourist infrastructure simply didn't exist in 1993. We were very happy with the free camping and cheap half-star rooms for rent that were our only options for accommodation. But the only maps we could find were totally inadequate for our purposes. Once we left the main highways to search for the few spots mentioned in the surf report, we were shooting in the dark. 
Remember, in 1993, the only people who knew about the so-called World Wide Web were a tiny group of nuclear scientists sharing information only they could understand. There were no Google Maps, no TripAdvisor.com, no Google Search to offer a million helpful websites in under a second. So most days, Joy and I laboured for hours in the relentless heat, searching for tracks to what we guessed might be the right corners of the Pacific coast, while the chain of volcanoes to our north played hide-and-seek in the clouds. But eventually, at the second attempt, we found the real Popoyo. The surf report asserted that this beach had the best waves in the country, but the directions to it were vague at best. Our first attempt to find the Popoyo waves ended in failure. On May 6th, we'd taken the sandy track to what called itself Popoyo, but the beach didn't match the surf report's description. Instead of a handy spot to camp in front of two reefs with great waves, we found a long, surfless beach with a few ruined houses. Later we learned that these had been destroyed by a tidal wave some years before. After another couple of sweaty hours following every rough track we could find, we concluded that the surf report must have got it wrong about Popoyo. So we ventured on to southern Nicaragua instead, where, after more hours of bouncing on rough dirt tracks, we found picturesque left point waves at an isolated beach called Manzanillo. That night, on the way back north from Manzanillo, we stayed in a cheap truck stop hotel in a small town called Ribas. The region, vaguely marked as Popoyo on our inadequate map, was only an hour's drive from Ribas. So the next morning we left our luggage in our hotel room and mounted a second expedition to find the fabled waves. Once again, we spent a frustrating couple of hours discovering the wrong stretches of coast. We'd all but given up and begun the drive back to Ribas when a small sign painted roughly on a tree-shaded three-bar wooden gate about a half a kilometre inland caught our eye. It said simply, locals only. Yes, it was written in English. And as any surfer knows, these two words of surfer speak mean, this track will take you to the waves we don't want to share with you. Well, thank you very much. We'd never have noticed the gate if locals only hadn't been painted on it. So we opened the unlocked gate and drove in. A few hundred metres later, the rough track through dry bush ended at an expanse of black mud the size of several football fields. Tyre tracks were cut through the middle of the mud to where we could see the bush track resume a few hundred metres away. But we calculated our small four-wheel drive wasn't high or powerful enough to make this direct traverse. Instead, we inched along the left edge of the mud flat, even then having some dodgy moments as we sometimes slewed sideways into the mire. Once we'd gained the hot, dusty track on the far side of the mud, it was only a few hundred metres more through the bush to the beach, and straight away we knew we'd found our mark. Bright blue waves brushed by a light offshore wind were breaking on two reefs, one straight out front, the other a few hundred metres down the beach. And there in the trees was the archetypical surfer's campsite. Around a rock-ringed fireplace, surfboards, towels and wet clothes hung from the branches of a grove of shade-giving trees just above the high tide line. A Ford Transit van, filled with mattresses and the few other items needed for a long-term life on the road, had its back door thrown open to catch the breeze. This was the Popoyo we'd been looking for. The campers weren't home, so while Joy went for a walk down the beach, I paddled out alone to the wave breaking on the eastern edge of the reef straight out in front. 
It was a long way out to sea, further than I'd thought, and the waves were big. The walls weren't long, but you could cut back and bottom turn till your legs hurt. When I came in, I found the campers had returned. Three Australians, two girls and a boy, and two American boys. After introducing ourselves and talking for a few minutes, the Australian bloke, Mal, suddenly said, Wait a minute, you're Gint's mate. I've seen your postcards on his fridge. Yes, yes, I know, coincidences are much more interesting in the event, not in the telling, but what were the chances? This was the first time I'd met Mal, and hadn't known he'd existed. In the six years I'd been living overseas, he'd become friends with my old school friend Gint and some of our mutual friends. Between us, Mal and I would travel 50,000 kilometres over 700 days that year. That our paths crossed at all, let alone in such an epic location, was a hell of a long shot. Anyways, as you can imagine, there were six years of Sydney gossip to catch up on round the campfire, while midnight oil blew with the offshore breeze from the tape player in Mal's van. That afternoon we surfed the reef further down the beach. These were some of the best ways I've surfed with just friends, alone. Along with Joy and Mal, there was John, a really good surfer from San Clemente, California. Near sunset, John and Pia, one of the Australian girls, swam out to the furthest edge of the front reef with spear guns. They were back half an hour later with a big red snapper and a parrotfish. We've caught too much for just us, they said. You should stay for dinner. So we did. Too much fun. It was ten o'clock before we finally tore ourselves away to drive the 50 k's back to Rebus. Heading back up the track from the beach in total darkness, apart from the narrow, bouncing tunnel of our headlights, Joy and I both forgot about the mudflats we'd edged around twelve hours before. Coming from the beach, the mud began where the track emerged from the shoreline bush and suddenly turned right. Before we'd had a chance to remember, we found ourselves sliding at least 20 metres into the slosh. Knowing that stopping, then trying to reverse out, would never work, our only chance was to maintain forward momentum and try to fishtail the rest of the way across. This got us to the exact middle of the mud pit, where we slewed to a halt and sank up to our axles. After much swearing, Joy took the driver's seat and I climbed out into the knee-deep, foul-smelling mud to push and pull like a man possessed. Half an hour later, it was clear we were doomed. We took our boards from the roof, stashed them in the car, and retreated the half-kilometre or so through the mud, then the bush, to the beach campsite. When we arrived, the campers were already asleep inside the back of the van so we did our best not to wake them as we silently washed the mud off in the ocean. Then we tried to sleep on the cold sand under the mosquito net that had been set up under the trees for afternoon siestas. An hour or so later, it started to rain. Then it rained harder. Then the lightning began. Pathetically, apologetically, we knocked on the door of the van to wake up our new friends and ask if there might be room inside for two more. There wasn't really, but heroically they squashed up further to make what little space they could. Even then, the only way Joy and I could wedge ourselves in was with the side doors slid wide open so that my legs dangled outside. Luckily, the rain kept the mosquitoes and other bugs away, but the strongest gusts of rain fell on Joy and I, and none of us got much sleep. 
In the sunny early morning, Mal helped us rescue the car. We removed everything heavy from inside and carried it to the mudflat's far edge. We dug away the mud from the tyres and axles. Then Mal and I jumped up and down on the rear bumper bar while Joy gently pumped the accelerator. It took us half an hour, but didn't we celebrate when we made it to the other side? Mal then drove with us to Rebus to stock up on supplies for the camp. I found a garage to repair the tyre we'd punctured on the rough roads of southern Nicaragua a few days earlier, our third flat tyre in ten days. And Joy went to make phone calls at the town post office. Her travel funds had run dry, and she was hoping to gain another day or two of surf time by persuading the airline to let her fly home from Nicaragua instead of Costa Rica. My time in Nicaragua was running out too. The following evening, I had a flight booked to El Salvador, where we're off to in the next chapter of 1993. Meeting back at the hotel at lunchtime, Mal and I were keen to get back to Popoyo for another surf, but Joy decided to stay in Rebus. The airline had refused to let her change her ticket, and she was going to try another couple of phone calls to different offices that afternoon. Besides, she was exhausted from having so little sleep the night before, and worried that her contact lenses were cracking in the constant heat and dust. We felt a bit bad about going back to Popoyo without Joy, but Mal needed to be dropped back to his campsite, and there was no local bus that afternoon. So it was just the two of us who made the one-hour drive back to the beach. The waves were pumping, over head-high and green-orange gold in the lowering afternoon sun. John was already out alone, tearing into the waves at the reef down the beach, and we joined him in a flash. About an hour into another all-time session, John fell awkwardly inside a barrel, and the back fin of his board gouged a deep hole just above his knee on the inside of his left leg. "'It's just a cut,' he said. "'You guys keep surfing,' and he paddled in without making a fuss. But an hour later when we came in, we could see the wound was much worse than he'd pretended. There wasn't much blood by then, but you could see plenty of white stuff deep down inside the gash. Still, John was determined not to kill the another-day-in-paradise vibe, and he refused to let us drive him to hospital. We collectively cleaned out the wound and closed it as best we could, and when the waves straight out front looked good in the late evening light, John insisted that Mal and I go for a surf. Mal got a couple of big ones and went in, so I was alone and a long way out to sea when I caught one of the biggest waves of my life. As I stood up, the boils in the dark green water made by shallow rocks and big fish seemed a long, long way down. That drop is burned into my hard drive. I don't know exactly how high it was, but it was definitely bigger than the one I'd fallen down a few months before at Soup Bowl in Barbados. I rode it all the way to the beach, just in time to run up the tall sand dune to take photos of the sunset. These days, 30 years later, the best and bravest surfers ride the left on the western side of this outer reef that we'd watched in awe from the shore. It's a nasty, shifty, big barrel that often clamps shut halfway through, one of the heaviest waves in Central America. Back then, before the advent of modern big wave and slab reef surfing, it was hard to imagine that anyone would have a crack at riding it, especially given the distance to any medical help. Despite the gash in his knee, John insisted we stay at the campsite for another magnificent barbecued fish dinner. Then, after, somewhat anaesthetised by a couple of hearty swigs of mescal tequila one of the girls had bought in Mexico, 
John boogied with us under the stars to the salsa tape I'd bought a few days earlier in San Juan del Sur. What an epic day and night. But the chapter hadn't finished yet. Leaving at about ten o'clock, there was still the mudflat to negotiate. This time we remembered to keep right as we came out of the trees and skirt the drier edge. All good. Then as we neared Rebus an hour later, an almighty storm clobbered us. Visibility descended to zero, apart from when lightning flashes gave us ill-focused glimpses, then left us blinking and momentarily blind. And still we had to find a doctor for John's wounded leg. We drove slowly up and down the deserted, flooding Rebus streets, looking for a sign. Finally we found some sort of medical place, it might have even been a vet, who told us, in Spanish, when we woke him up, that we'd have to go to another place on the other side of town. So it was long after midnight when we finally found Rebus' small hospital. As soon as John and I had parked the car and limped soaking wet across the muddy car park, another enormous lightning strike knocked out the entire town's power supply. In the smoky lamplight that replaced the hospital's fluorescent lighting, the doctor apologised to John that the hospital's supply of anaesthetic was low, so he could give him only half what would be needed. I wonder now, only half seriously, if this would have been the case if John's accent hadn't been unmistakably American. The wound was ten hours old by now, so it needed to be fully opened and cleaned out before the stitches could be sewn. All this was done while John held a battery torch to illuminate the wound while the doctor went to work. If I'd known what was happening, perhaps I could have been more help, but as soon as the doctor had taken John away from the waiting room, I'd stretched out across the simple wooden bench and fallen asleep. In my dream, a woman was screaming, over and over. After who knows how long, another flash and booming crash directly overhead half woke me up. In that haze between sleep and awake, I could still hear a woman screaming. Then I blinked fully awake and realised the screams were coming from somewhere within the pitch-black building. I lay paralysed, wondering what the hell. Then came another scream like nothing I'd heard before, a baby's first desperate cries, followed by the mother's own cries of relief and joy. It'd be a dozen years before I came that close to childbirth again, when our first son was born. Sometime later, John came lurching back to me by torchlight. He was pale and traumatised, and obviously not in the mood to recount his experience. He worked me, was all John managed to say through gritted teeth. We found our way back to the hotel around 2am, where Joy was surprised to find I wasn't dead. It wasn't the time to tell the whole story, but the fat bandage round John's knee went some way to explaining why we were so late. I gave John my bottom bunk bed and slept on my surfboard cover on the floor. Lights out. In the morning, we drove Joy down to the Costa Rican border so she could catch her flight home. Our parting was pretty melancholy. She was disappointed that her surf trip was over, and since we couldn't take the hire car out of Nicaragua, she'd have to make the four-hour bus drive to San Jose Airport with all her gear alone. Joy and I met up again in Hawaii five years later, but that's a chapter in the next book. So John and I drove alone the two hours to Managua to get our flights that evening. John was going back home to California to nurse his lacerated knee. I was off to El Salvador to explore for more waves. 
After the dramatic events of the last day or two, this journey to the airport should have been a straightforward non-event. But halfway through the suburbs of Managua, two pretty girls approached our car while we were stopped at traffic lights. Would we like them to take us to the scenic lake not far from town, they ask in Spanish. Sure, says John. You're kidding, says I. Get in, says John to the girls. But there's no room for them to get in. Behind our seats, our stuff's piled right to the roof. So one of them, Angel, climbs across John's legs. Yes, that's right, you remember the stitches? And sits on the low compartment between the front seats. The other, Vanessa, sits on John's lap. Yes, the stitches. We'll need to get our bikinis first, they say. You can see where this is going, but John was sure we could take them at their word. So we drive them round the corner to what might have been their house, but looked more like a corrugated iron car repair garage, and they reappear a minute later with their bikinis. This way, they say, in Spanish, and they direct us out of town to this beautiful lake. They get their cozies on and we all go swimming. We're the only ones there. I'm pretty sure this was when their brothers and fathers and male cousins and friends were meant to turn up and steal all our stuff. Whether John and I got shot, stabbed or beaten to death in the process would be a mere detail. Anyways, after ten minutes swimming, the girls decide they've had enough. Obviously the brothers, fathers, cousins and friends had taken too long to buy the ammunition. So we take the girls back to town. When we drop them home, they give us a number to call for later on. I'm changing my flight to stay here tonight, says John. I think he's out of his mind, but to my surprise, the airline I'm booked with doesn't care if I fly tonight or tomorrow. So I change my flight and stay the night to keep him company. We find an okay cheap room to rent, and John calls the girl's number. Surprisingly, it really is their number, and John arranges to meet Vanessa somewhere in town. Take care, I say, and settle down to write my diary. There's plenty to remember, and I don't want to forget a single minute of it. I fall asleep wondering if I'll ever see John again. At about three in the morning, he wakes me up when he returns. She let me down, he says quietly, and I can hear in his voice that his stitches are giving him hell. I reckon he dodged a bullet. While I was recording these past days in my diary... I'd gone back to the beautiful little waves Joy and I had discovered earlier that week at Playa Manzanillo in Nicaragua's south. In 1993, it had been a long, hot, rough ride on a tyre-ripping track to a deserted left point and beach break. These days, it's a sophisticated tourist resort with a huge swimming pool and manicured golf course. And Popoyo now has at least one upmarket surf resort looking over what are globally known as some of Central America's best waves. It's a shame that development has reshaped the pure surfing coastlines we explored. But if it means the Nicaraguan people are building better lives for themselves in a now stable country, I'm all for it. If you'd like to see some photos that accompany these stories, you can find them at jameswiley.com and there's a link in the show notes. The music you've been listening to is written by me, and played by me and my band, The Nomads. Big love and thanks to my family and friends, without whom this wouldn't exist. And if you want to make a podcast, look up Rod Morrie at Sydney Podcast Studios. Thanks for dropping in. 
See ya. <laughs>